Asia Pacific Currents. News and labour issues from the Asia Pacific region. We strongly condemn the, the police that arrest uh, the protesters. Saturday mornings at 9 o'clock on Community Radio 3CR. All views of the world should unite by this greedy capitalist. Brought to you by Australia Asia Worker Link. Good morning and welcome to Asia Pacific Currents this Saturday, the 23rd of February. I'm Giselle Hanna. And I'm Pierre Morrow and I can't even get a word in, really, I was just about. But, <laughs> he just know. drew breath and I started talking. That's right. And is this our first show together? See, listeners, we've only been on the New Year show for about three or four weeks, and but we've done this for so long that all these years have just melted into one we can't even remember. But at least, you know, I've got a certain more years than this grasshopper here, I can sort of say, you know, maybe. But I don't oh, know what's her excuse. Yes. <laughs> So, um, as we said, this is Asia Pacific Currents, which is brought to you by Australia Asia Worker Links. And if you want to find us on the web, you can do that by going to www.aawl.org.au. We're on Facebook and Twitter, so find us on those social media platforms. And, of course, if you want to email us, you can write to aawl at aawl.org.au. Fantastic. That's right. We're always keen to hear what you, the listeners out there all over the world, uh, can tell us and on this program um, we'll have a full roundup of news items from uh, the region and in the second half of the of the program we're lucky enough to catch up with uh, Maria Ressa who is the CEO of the online multimedia website in the Philippines now Maria was actually was arrested um, not uh, last week um, for some very unsp- uh, weird uh, charges and uh, we caught up to her and to talk to her about the uh, the issue of being a journalist under the President Duterte's administration. And it's interesting because uh, uh, what I thought was just one arrest, uh, actually, and there's a whole history and there's actually many more arrests there as well. So it's quite a... Um, at some time, Giselle, you sort of start an interview with the, an objective and then you find out there's all this stuff that you really didn't know and it makes it more interesting. So stay listening. So that is in the second part. But, of course, we're going to start the show with news from around the region. And we're going to kick off in Bangladesh. And once again, the Bangladeshi garment sector safety issues are under attack. One of the outcomes from the disastrous building collapse at Rana Plaza in 2013 that killed over 1,100 garment workers was the establishment of the Bangladesh Accord. This accord was an internationally recognised agreement that covered over 1,500 garment factories and covered health and safety standards for the industry. This led to many factories upgrading their facilities. In late November last year, a court in Bangladesh ordered the functions and records of the accord to be handed over to Bangladeshi authorities. Given the continued repression of workers' organisations in the garment industry and the widespread corruption and collusion between the government and the garment factory owners, this outcome would see any improvements gained in the last few years quickly reversed. And uh, we actually stay in Bangladesh for quite a um, a terrible story, unfortunately, at least um, which actually just flows on from that. Uh, the first story where at least 70 people in the working class areas of all Dhaka's congested Chokobazar district were killed when a fire spread through a number of buildings on the evening of Wednesday the 20th of February 
The area is dense, densely packed with housing, commercial, retail and industrial activities occurring next to each other. The fire is thought to have broken out in a chemical warehouse on the ground floor of a five-storey building and quickly spread to other buildings. Facilitated by the dense architecture of the place, the availability of flammable materials which were in um, uh, warehouses there and inadequate fire systems. Over 50 people were officially injured, probably many more, but that's the official tally, while some of the affected buildings are now unsafe and in danger of collapsing. Unfortunately, more bodies may be found in the rubble in the coming weeks. And in India, a new report released by Human Rights Watch has catalogued that in the three-year period between 2015 and 2018, over 40 people were murdered as a result of violent vigilante campaigns in what are known as cow attacks. The report states that almost all the victims were Muslims and most of the attacks occurred from organised Hindu groups. From the evidence, it's quite clear that the current BJP government of Prime Minister Modi is creating a sectarian culture by promoting Hindu chauvinism. This then not only leads to the creation of Hindu-inspired fascist thugs, but also creates a political and social environment where these crimes are not investigated and the perpetrators not punished. Actually, we also reported in the past and... Pierre, when I was in India a couple of years ago, we met with um, some of the Dalit workers in Mumbai, many of whom work in abattoirs, where these Hindu thugs actually raid these abattoirs and um, beat the workers. So these are people in their workplaces because the abattoirs are slaughtering cattle, which, as this story says, are the sacred um, symbol of Hinduism. That's right, and uh, what that story doesn't say, it's actually also the the Dalits and the Avidads, I think, uh, but I could be wrong, that's the indigenous people of India. So it's very much a class-based issue. Uh, we remain in, uh, in, uh, in India where we go to South India, where last week we brought you news of a two-day strike by workers at the Thiruvithur MRI tyre plant in Chennai over the introduction of spy cameras in the in the factory we have now received reports that the strike has continued for over a week at the nearby enfield oregadam factory that employs um, um, around five and a half thousand workers workers have once again initiated actions against management this is a continuation of the strike from last year that we did report on and is now focused on the forcible transfer of union activists to other states in another ongoing long-running dispute in the same region, workers at the Precolt factory are preparing to take action once again following the company's stated aims to dismiss over 200 workers. This comes on top of their attempts to move almost 300 workers to other parts of their country. And I think um, last year we did actually try to get an interview from uh, unionists in that region and it didn't quite, due to technical issues, didn't quite get in there, but I think we'll have to uh, get, uh, get you one very, very soon. So moving now to the Middle East, specifically Jordan, during the so-called Arab Spring that started in 2011, the working class in Jordan has also mobilised periodically to put forward demands over labour laws, wages and conditions and corruption. Unfortunately, they've always faced a legislative environment that restricts workers' rights to freedom of association, to organise and to collectively bargain. In addition, these limitations include prohibiting migrant workers, which is a significant part of the Jordanian workforce, from forming their own unions 
It also includes prohibitions on permitting unions um, in in sectors, and there are in fact only unions in seventeen sectors, and limiting one union per sector. Notwithstanding these restrictions, the government is currently undertaking more reforms to labour laws that will further um, restrict and constrain workers' ability to organise and increase job security. There's never any limit to how much you can uh, stop workers from organising. And um, now we actually go to the other side of, of Asia, to East Asia, to South Korea, for a very, very similar story. On, um, on this Wednesday, the 20th of February, thousands of workers from many unions under the banner of the Korean Confederation of Trade Unions took part in a number of actions against proposed new legislation. The workers' demands in- included the halt of companies' restructuring plans, better uh, occupational health and safety enforcement, withdrawal of legislation that stifles industrial campaigning, a stops to, uh, to government subs- subsidies to the big Korean chai balls, i.e. the big family, uh, huge global companies, and a cancellation of pro- proposed new labour laws. These um, proposed new labour laws will allow companies to introduce a flexibilised working hour system that would effectively lengthen working hours at the company's wishes. The call from all workers participating in these actions was for a general strike to be called in the coming months. And in PNG, in the ongoing saga of Australia's repression of asylum seekers and refugees, a new low has been reached. The Australian government has had difficulty finding companies to run the security at its offshore concentration camps and recently awarded an obscure security company, Paladin Solutions, a $420 million contract to run Manus and Nauru. In addition to questions about the competence of this company, it's now been reported that Paladin made staff redundant and then offered to rehire all of them on a lower salary. Many of the workers only make a dollar fifty to two dollars per hour. Quite um, incredible. I mean, the the, the horrible repre- you know areas of repression, but you get workers on starvation wages to do the repression. Um, abysmal, and uh, anyway, the words really really fail us, or at least fail me. Um, but Giselle might be much more. No, loquacious. no words fail me. I just think <laughs> we're presiding over the most horrendous torture of people in concentration camps, and it is uh, it's almost impossible to be with. That's right, and uh, that's the end of the um, news roundup from from the region. I did forget to say at the start to thank Solidarity Breakfast for another uh, interesting show as usual, and also that very beautiful song that uh, Annie did put on was Life is Worth Living by Archie Roach, and we'd certainly agree with that. We'll go to a couple of community announcements, and then we'll be back with the interview with Maria Ressa. There is power in numbers and there is power in independent, community-run media. Join the swelling number of people fighting back by becoming a member of your radical activist radio station. Show us your love and subscribe to 3CR. Call us on 9419 8377 or pay online 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe.
Hey, this is Nick from Pinyao. You're listening to 3CR. Please support community radio and your local music scene. Subscribe now. Give money back to the people that give music to you. It's just on 12 past 9 o'clock here on your favorite community radio station, 3CR Radio, and you're listening to Asia Pacific Currents, brought to you every week by Australia Asia Worker Links, and that's right. Um, we're just talking among ourselves here about when we heard that uh, announcement about, about subscriber week or subscribe to 3CR. We're not too sure if it's still subscriber week or fortnight, but certainly you can subscribe at any time. Because if you like what you hear, this is how we keep on air about you, the listener, supporting us. Um, and that's why we can say what we can say. And we can assure you, you're not going to listen to, you're not going to be able to hear the stories that we bring you anywhere else on radio in um, in Australia. But um, we go to our interview where, as I said that earlier in the day, um, early in the program, we were lucky enough to talk to Maria Ressa, who is the CEO of the... Um, online multimedia site uh, Repla in the Philippines and the reason we interviewed was that um, uh, she was arrested um, uh, last week um, and on trumped up charges and it's very much um, to do about the fact that they're um, quite um, an a outlet that criticizes and exposes the corruption and repression of the Duterte government. Maria can you give us a bit of a background to our listeners? What is REPLA? We just turned seven years old this January. In our sixth year, the government decided to try to shut down Rappler. Uh, and we have been battling political intimidation and harassment cases since then. So what are we? Our end goal when I was when I was setting it up with with friends of mine was to to use the journalism, investigative journalism, as food that we feed communities of action. So if you ask me the end goal of Rappler, it's to build communities of action. It's to use the technology that's available to actually have impact in the real world. I live in a country that has weak institutions, endemic corruption, and I've been a journalist for more than 30 years. And I was tired of just throwing stories into a black hole. And I thought that this new technology, social media, tech platforms, what we could do with it is incredible in terms of building communities of action. Obviously, given that you've said that after five and a half years, the government started to crack down on you. And the last week, you were actually arrested. Can you give us a bit of a background on the arrest and what were you charged with? Wednesday night, this is uh, February 13th, so it was really my Valentine's gift, I suppose, of around 5 p.m. after the courts have closed, National Bureau investigation officers came into the office of Rappler. I was having a meeting, and they issued an arrest warrant. And that was that would have been the sixth time I'm posting bail in uh, two months, right? So right off the top, it the looking at the arrest warrant, it was there was something strange about it because it didn't actually give how much I was going to post bail. So one of the newspapers, for example, even thought that there was this was a non-bailable offense. What what was the arrest warrant for? It was uh, for cyber libel, meaning the the case is centers around a story that was published by Rappler seven years ago in twenty twelve. Four months before the actual law we allegedly violated was even enacted. So 
I've used every word around ridiculous and laughable, every synonym you can think of to describe this case. But this is the case that I was arrested for and then detained overnight um, because of a series of actions by the government. Like there was a night court that was open until 9 p.m. Um, my lawyers were there by 7 p.m. We should have been allowed to post bail. That judge refused to accept it. So I'm incensed and I've actually talked a lot about how I felt this action is an abuse of power and a way to weaponize the law against perceived critics and journalists. Unfortunately, we have seen all around the, the region the laws against uh, journalism and social media really being tightened up and uh, journalists and media activists going for jail for totally trumped up ridiculous charges. So are you actually released on bail and what is your bail conditions? I have posted bail six times in two months. You know, that is unnatural. Um, the first five times were for tax evasion charges. Let me backtrack and tell you exactly how many cases are live and I'm fighting in court. I, at least nine cases and at least two more investigations by the government. So they want to take up my time. The five tax evasion charges actually, they essentially reclassified Rappler from a news organization to a, a dealer in securities. We don't sell stocks to consumers, which, but they said that's why we owe them taxes because an investment done uh, according to the Constitution, it's something called the Philippine Depository Receipts, that this uh, now we need to pay them taxes. This, by the way, this action is also the subject of two other cases, the mother case, I call it, which is uh, January of 2018, the government tried to revoke the licenses of Rappler. We, that's the longest case that we've been we've been fighting. And uh, the Court of Appeals has actually remanded that back to the regulatory agency, saying that it overreached and should not have tried to revoke our license. It's back in that agency. So I feel like what we've gone through in a little more than a year is a government that has tried very hard to find cases that, A, would either shut us down, hamper our operations, or intimidate us into silence. And uh, the worst, of course, was this case, February 14th, the sixth case I've posted bail on, that, you know, the law hadn't even existed when we allegedly violated it. Each one of these cases all will have repercussions. Um, we go through each of these, right? Um, and here we are. We're still operating. The lie, I always say we're going to hold the line. We're going to continue doing stories that will hold the powerful to account. And obviously, like you said, it's all about intimidation and taking up uh, your time. Because if, if I've read correctly, Rappler has been quite a fierce critic of Duterte's uh, murderous war on, on drugs over the last two and a half years. Murderous is the right word. It began in, in July of 2016. And, you know, during that time period, uh, those nights, our reporter would come home and we would have video of like an average of eight dead bodies a night. There's something truly wrong when so many people are killed without due process. And then to have that paired with 
I, I almost call it information warfare on social media. So the weaponization of social media happened that same month that the drug war began. Anyone on Facebook, 97% of Filipinos on the Internet are on Facebook. Facebook is our Internet. Anyone on Facebook who questioned the deaths in the drug war, they were brutally attacked, um, this time with words. But words have consequences. So essentially what happened was Free speech was being used to pound anyone who questioned the drug war into silence. So the narrative, what happened is people, uh, there was a definite chilling effect and people shut down. And of course, as you have just said, words have an effect and can actually have an effect in real life because, I mean, again, all around the region, social media does transform in real life. And now the Philippines is actually seen as one of the most dangerous places in the world for journalists. Starting in 2009, uh, there was a massacre. It was the largest uh, group of journalists that were murdered in election-related violence, right? In broad daylight, uh, they were buried with municipal backhoe, with a municipal backhoe in in a mass grave. So this country, again, it goes down to law and order, right? We have endemic corruption and law and order is weak. But nothing now compares to having the threats and having the most powerful man in the nation be the one to lead the way in threatening and attacking journalists. And that's and we're seeing that not just in the Philippines, but also in the United States. You know, the whole term fake news, uh, very interesting when it came out of President Trump's mouth a week later. So President Trump calls CNN and the New York Times fake news. A week later, President Duterte calls Rappler fake news. I think this is alarming because words are weapons. We know this as journalists. So where does that leave you now and in terms of journalism and really all these working class, urban poor communities at the mercy of a institution of the presidency of the government who really seems to have no bounds and certainly in the war on drugs has killed probably at least 20,000 people? I'm glad you used that number because even that, exactly how many, is a casualty in our war for truth. So that there, what we're definitely seeing is an abuse of power and impunity. And part of the reason I've, I'm now speaking out, I'm very uncomfortable as a journalist because I'm not an activist, right? I have a, I had a, a I'm, I'm a conservative, traditional journalist, and all of a sudden I'm in a position where to stand for my values and principles and the standards and ethics that I've, that I've grown up with as a journalist, requires that I point out that we are so far, our constitution and our laws have been bent so far that they're broken. And I feel, I say this because I know it personally. As a Filipino citizen, my rights were violated. As a journalist, I can see actions happening with impunity. And I think After all of this, I I tried to figure out why would the government want me to spend a night in jail? And I think it comes down to it's not just about me. It's about the chilling effect these actions have. It's it's a message that one of the NBI agents who came to arrest me told one of our young reporters who was live streaming the arrest. Right. And he told her, be quiet or you'll be next. And that's the signal that that they're 
they're sending to everyone. I think this is not just about me. It's not about journalists. I think it, it goes to why press freedom is so integral to a, to a democracy. Press freedom is the anchor of all of the rights of all Filipinos to the truth so that you can hold the powerful to account. And if we can't do that, then we're no longer a democracy. I think you've hit on many uh, good points there, Maria. And as a very last question, and really coming back to where we started the interview about what is REPLA, do you think that you have helped the social movements by your journalism? I think people are afraid. And maybe I'm foolish not to be afraid, but I know that this atmosphere of fear only enables the destruction of our democracy. And I think, you know, in my area of influence, which is Rappler, which is a young idealistic team, we believe that this is our watch. And when the constitution is broken, when we see a story that needs to be done, like, for example, a vigilante who admits that he was given a list of people to kill and paid to kill them by the police, the Philippine police, that's a story that needs to be told, and we're not afraid to tell it. So I think that's the main thing. This is our watch. This has happened before in the Philippines, and too many people were afraid to prevent it from turning into a dictatorship in 1973. This is my time. I understand it. I see it. I feel it. And we will stand up and shine the light, and hopefully that will allow more voices to speak up and to realize that this is death by a thousand cuts and we cannot allow that to happen. We wish you all the very best, uh, Maria, the fighting words to go out with. We wish you all the best and please uh, keep yourself safe. Thanks so much. Thanks for doing the story. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855am. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live. And that was uh, Maria Ressa, who's the CEO of uh, Repla, their online multimedia uh, site in the Philippines about uh, current repression in the Philippines. But we've got about three minutes, Giselle. You've got a number of announcements, so the floor all over to you. Oh, I thank you. Um, so we are coming up to International Women's Day, which means there is quite a bit happening on the political agenda. Um, Trades Hall, as uh, it has done for the last three years now, is running its Raw Fest, the Women's Rights at Work Festival. It's a week of political activity. One, in my view, of the most political activities in that week is the rally, which is on... I agree with that, by the way. <laughs> Friday the 8th of March at 5.30pm starting at the State Library. So get along to um, International Women's Day Rally and March to uh, support the ongoing fight uh, to end sexism uh, and for women's rights. We uh, Workers Solidarity is also organising marshalling for International Women's Day. It is not a rally free from pressure or dissent or resistance. So there are groups that oppose the demands of International Women's Day. Um, So there is Marshall's training on uh, Monday, 
the 25th, so in two days' time. So we're meeting at six o'clock at Trades Hall um, to commence that marshalling. We have a preference for women, people that identify as women and gender diverse people in that marshalling structure, Um, but we won't exclude male identified or men identified as men. The other event that I want to announce is a a public meeting called International Sisterhood Um, and this meeting is being held on Monday the 4th of March at 5.30pm to 8.30pm at Trades Hall. Um, This is a a meeting to discuss migrant and refugee women's rights at work in the global fight against racism and sexism. I'm actually one of the speakers at that public meeting as is Samantha Bond from AFIDA, and Marty Verma, who's a migrant workers activist and lawyer, and Sakina Hassani, who is a human rights activist. So get along to that on Monday, the 4th of March at 5.30 to 8.30 p.m. at Trades Hall. Oh, that uh, sounds like a great uh, lineup. Uh, maybe we can even um, play some of the speeches and the interventions from that meeting, Giselle. I'll assess whether they're any good or not, and then uh, we'll, we can broadcast of them. Of course, apart from yours. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Which goes without saying, of course. Um, it's just on nine twenty-nine, uh, 29 past 9 o'clock. We've actually finished on time, Giselle. Fantastic. Um, maybe this is uh, a new way of doing it for 2019, but we'll see. So please, yeah, thank you listeners for tuning in. We'll be back next Saturday from 9 o'clock with more news and current affairs from the Asia-Pacific region. And coming up next is Palestine Remembered. And uh, you've been listening to Asia-Pacific Currents. I'm Pierre Morrow. And I'm Giselle Hanna. We'll be, and um, keep supporting 3CR Radio. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.